Are you guys know the word eschatology? Yeah, what's that mean? Who wants to tell me? Study of? Nope, that's Christology. Yeah, end times, right? You're not a real Christian unless you know the word eschatology. Just kidding. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, that's a $5 word. It just means like the study of the things that happen at the end, the study of the end times. Uh, there's a couple mistakes I think people make, believers make, when dealing with eschatology. Okay, I'm going to give you three of them. The first one is that people think, I'm going to look at the Bible and I'm going to be able to predict the end times. So one of the first guys who did this was there was a dude in, um, what was it, the 1800s, uh, William Miller, the Millerites. I don't know if anybody learned about that and ever. But anyway, there's a guy, he did some math, he looked at the Bible. Oh, Jesus is coming back on April 3rd, 1840, I don't remember exactly when it was, but so all of his followers sold all their stuff. Um, I think I've actually talked about this guy before, when, last time I looked up the dates. But anyway, all their, his followers sold all their stuff, and they went and hung out on the hilltop waiting to, for the second coming, and then it like didn't happen, and he was like, oh, I forgot to carry the three, it's actually next Tuesday. And then, you know, he did this a whole bunch of times until the movement completely fizzled out. Um, recently, though, here in the Bay Area, I don't know, was anybody here when Harold Camping did his whole thing? Does anybody know Harold Camping? Yeah, you guys remember? So when was that, like 2010 maybe? Yeah, was it? Anyway, so this guy, Harold Camping, um, and I actually uh, knew, uh, this is the guy, Craig, uh, worked at this radio station with this nut job, and um, uh, got fired because Craig is great, and this guy's a nut job. Uh, <laughs> but anyway, um, this guy, Harold Camping, did the same thing. All right, I'm going to do the math. Here's the end of the world. You know, it's coming up. All over the Bay Area, there were these billboards. They bought a ton of billboards just everywhere. Like, Jesus is coming back on. It was like, I think it was in May of whatever year that was. Um, and he did this actually a few times. Like, in the 90s, he did this. And then, uh, you know, I forgot to carry the seven. It's actually in. Um, and uh, I have a funny story about this. My mom was at Mission Springs, which is like a campground in Scotts Valley. And my mom was doing something. My mom did a lot of, like, kids ministry stuff when I was a kid. So she was down there doing something, I don't remember what. And she was waiting in the office for some reason, like in the waiting room. And Harold Camping had done one of his, the world's going to end in three months, conferences. And then walked in and then booked the conference hall for next year, reserved his space. <laughs> My mom was sitting there like, this nut job, you know. I always thought that was really funny. Anyway, so that's the first mistake. People, oh, I can predict the date of the end times. The second mistake is I haven't, eschatological system, that's the word, I looked it up, and this is what I believe, and if you don't believe what I do, you're a heretic. <clears throat> so my system becomes like the litmus test for um, whether or not you take the Bible seriously. And so what that does, though, is it completely elevates something that's not exactly, the, the things that aren't super clear to like the same level as the things that are clear. So that's a big mistake people make. The third mistake is that people see, they read the eschatology stuff, they get really into it. And they see it as a puzzle. And all the clues are in the Bible. And you have to put the puzzle together, right? And so they have all these charts and all this stuff, right? And I don't want to make fun of charts because someday I might use a chart to explain eschatology, so I don't want to get, you know, I don't want to say too, but, but for, you know, there's the, like, I have a book of, like, end times charts that somebody bought me, and it's hilarious. It's, like, very in-depth. And on this date, this is going to, you know, but anyway, you, you start to talk to these people, right? And they, you know what I mean? You know this guy from this meme? Or uh, this guy? From, uh, what's that from? Ancient Aliens? You guys know that meme? So they start to sound like these two guys, right? Just like everything here is sort of, I figured it out. I have the secret code. Um, kind of not coincidentally, all of the people who, not all, but a lot of the people who see the end times like this also don't think we landed on the moon, <laughs> right? There's a similar, like, I figured it out. There, that's, the flag's not waving, and this is when Jesus is coming back, you know? or the flag was waving, whatever they say about the moon. I don't know. 
Uh, <laughs> we landed on the moon. I actually had a pastor friend of mine who, that's why I'm making this joke, he really was like really into this end time stuff, like these charts and everything, and he didn't believe we landed on the moon. And I, it's like, he would like try to convince me at coffee. I was like, I thought we were just getting coffee, man. I don't, get away from me. My dad works at NASA. <laughs> All right, so we, here's the thing. We don't want to make any of these three mistakes. We don't want to be the kind of people who think we figured out the date. We don't want to be the kind of people who hold our eschatology and our beliefs about the end times. Like the specific, there's like different systems you can kind of fall in. We don't want to say if you're not in our system, you're a terrible person and you're not really a believer. And we don't want to be the kind of believers who are, you know, these two guys. (laughs) So let's read. Jesus is going to, so there's a better way to approach this. And Jesus kind of goes at this today. So we're in Luke 17. We're going to read uh, 20 through 37. So being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. So here's the thing. Notice this. This is important detail. Who asked the question? Pharisees, not the disciples. Okay, so that's going to be important. The Pharisees have been hanging out with Jesus, but why have they been hanging out with Jesus, right? Because they don't like him. They're trying to trip him up, and they're trying to find some reason to go after him. And so they ask him this question, when will the kingdom of God, you know, when it would come? Now, you have to understand the kingdom hope of first century Jewish people in the land of Israel. Okay, so you have to understand the flow of the Old Testament. So at a certain point, the people were ruled by, for 400 and something years, they were mostly an independent nation who would then be taken over and then they would win their freedom. Then they would be taken over and win their freedom. That's the period of the judges. And they got sick of that cycle. And so they asked God for a king, kind of against God's wishes. And so God gave them some kings. The first king was kind of a turkey. His name was Saul. The second king, he was pretty great. His name was David, except for the whole adultery murder thing. Uh, But other than that, he was pretty great, right? And uh, he expanded the land of Israel. And it was sort of the glory days of Israel was in the time of his son, Solomon. It was like the peak of the kingdom of Israel. And, uh, you know, Solomon was famous. He was rich. Like it, it, this was the high point in their eyes. So then they add a bunch of other kings. They split into two nations, Israel in, uh, Ju- Israel in the north, Judah in the south. They add a bunch of other kings. In the eyes of God, most of those kings were turkeys. In the eyes of the people, some of them were, like, not spiritually great, but expanded territory and won battles. And, you know, so the, that 400-year stretch they thought of as this was like the, the, good, the good old days. And then what happened was because of the spiritual stuff, God put them into exile. So the north got taken by Assyria, the south by Babylon. And during that time, a bunch of prophets came along and they had this promise. So these people had this glorious kingdom of independence that went on for, at this point, you know, what, seven, eight hundred years, something like that. And uh, all of a sudden now they're in captivity in, in Babylon. And they have this promise, though, that someday the kingdom is going to come back. Right? The kingdom is coming. And there's this promised king who is going to come and he's going to put everything back together. He's going to make everything right. And there's actually really interesting, like, um, I was just, I read this, I read Ezra and Nehemiah's one book, you know. I was reading that the other day. And it's really interesting. What happens is they do come back and then they get back into the land, they rebuild the temple. And all the old people who remember the old temple, they start crying. And they're sad because this temple sucks. <laughs> this is not the temple from before. This is not the glory days. Well, then what happens is, so they, they are still a vassal kingdom. And then you, you know Alexander the Great, uh, played by Colin Farrell, right? That's how I, anyway. So he goes all around the world and kills everybody, sets up his kingdom, and then he dies really young. And his four generals kind of split the kingdom up. So there was a long period where um, the people of Israel, again, this kingdom has not come back yet. The Solomon's kingdom, David's kingdom, has not come back. They're under the thumb of the Ptolemies and different, you know, like these, the families of these generals. Uh, and then Rome comes along and defeats those guys and takes over the land of Israel. There was like a little period where they had a king, sort of, but even that wasn't that great. This is all in like the, um, you know, the in-between the Testament time. Then Rome comes along puts their thumb down, uh, you know, and is really oppressive. And that's the time where these Pharisees are living. 
And so this hope of a king coming back and setting up the Davidic kingdom again is like very real to these people. This is the thing they think about constantly. And so they ask Jesus. I think their question was not like, hey, when do you think the kingdom is coming back? I think it was probably more like, well, since you know everything, when's the kingdom coming? Right? Because we're here. Rome's still here. That's a Roman right there. I see him walking. You know, like, when are we going to get rid of all these disgusting Romans and these Gentiles and all this stuff? That's what they're thinking. So Jesus' answer, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. So this word in Greek, observed, is a very weird Bible that's, uh, sorry, weird word that's only used here in the Bible. This is the only time it's used. Um, In other Greek writing, what this word means, we can see, is uh, like watching events like in space and then predicting things, right? So think of like the Magi. They come to visit because Jesus, because they see the star. This was a very common, this sort of astrology sort of stuff, was very common in the ancient world. Like I can predict, I can see this thing happening, and then I can predict it. And Jesus uses that specific, or Luke, translating Jesus as Aramaic, uses that specific word on purpose. It was a, it was a, it was a common word in the ancient world, just not in the Bible. Because what he's saying is you think there's like this secret code and you can figure it out and then you'll know when the kingdom of God is coming. And he says, that's not how it works. It's not coming like that. You're looking for the wrong thing. So where is the kingdom? How will we know? That's what he says in 21. So nor will they say, look, here it is or there it is. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. So you're not going to be able to go, that's, you know, I see this happening and I'll figure it out. Harold Camping style, right? The kingdom of God is in the midst of you. So the Greek word there is entos. It's another rare, obscure word. Uh, so what does Jesus mean here? This is one of those passages I'm going to give you the options, right? Because there's three possible meanings to this word. So first is kind of what we all assume he means when we read this. The kingdom of God is in the midst of you, as in it's inside of you. It's an internal reality. Uh, we're a very, like, we're all about psychology and inner reflection in the West and individualism. And so we read this, and most of us just assume that's what Jesus means. Uh, the problem with that interpretation is who is he talking to? Who asked the question? The Pharisees. So do you think Jesus goes to these Pharisees who are trying to kill him? The kingdom of God is in your heart. No, I don't think so. It doesn't, it doesn't really fit the context. He's not talking to the disciples here. The second option is in, as in the kingdom of God is within your reach. So it's in the, like, you can almost grab it. That's what some people will say. Again, the problem here is the same problem as the first one, the audience. I don't think he's telling the Pharisees, you guys are really close to the kingdom of God. You're you're like almost there. That doesn't really fit. The third option is the one that makes the most sense. He says, the kingdom of God is among you. Like, you're looking for the kingdom of God. I'm the king. I'm right here, guy. You're asking me, right? I think that's what Jesus is saying. Um, There's a biblical scholar named A.J. Matil who did like this crazy, I was reading about this, intensive word study where he looked up this word in thousands of instances over Greek literature, and he came to the conclusion, this is the one that kind of fits the best. It's not like, it doesn't mean inside you. It means like the kingdom of God is right here. And Jesus means his ministry, his life, what he's doing with these Pharisees, with these disciples. Um, So I'm the king. You're looking for a sign. How about like when I just healed that blind guy (laughs) or when I just healed that leper or when I did the feeding of the 5,000 or when I was teaching about the kingdom of God? Do you remember that like yesterday? (laughs) Right. And now you're like, okay, but where's the real kingdom? He's like, it's right here, you stupids. All right, verse 22. So he keeps going. Uh, but he says kind of like it's, the king is here now, but it's not always going to be like that. So he says this, now he says to the disciples. So he, he shifts the focus. Pharisees to the disciples. The days are coming when you will desire to see uh, one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. So the phrase in English day just means day most of the time, right? Just like, you know, morning to nighttime, whatever. Uh, the when you see the word day in Scripture, like, you got to figure out the context because it also has this like, wide meaning, this implication of the Old Testament talks about. We, I think we watched one of those videos in the summer, right? The Day of the Lord, the Bible Project video. So I th- a lot of the times when Jesus says the day, he doesn't mean like Wednesday. 
He means like the, the great and awesome day of the Lord. And so that's kind of the context here. And he says, um, the days are coming, right? So this, this, this eschatological period are coming. When you're going to desire to see the days of the Son of Man, you're going to desire to see this time period of when I was here, but you won't be able to. Do you know how the Bible ends? You know the last verses of the Bible? Does anybody know even remotely what it's about? I'm curious, right? We don't talk about it a lot. I'm going to read it to you. I don't think I have a... Let's see. Oh, I did. I put it right here. I put it in the wrong place. Uh, He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you all. Amen. So the end of the Bible goes like this. Jesus, please come back quickly. Until then, give us all a bunch of grace to get to that point. Right now, we... we, um, Let's go back to, wait, where was I? Uh, Yeah, this verse here. Now, we don't want to read this wrong. Uh, We don't want to read this like he's telling the disciples, pretty soon I'm going to leave and then you're really going to miss me because I won't be here anymore. Because we know from the book of John, he says to them, it's actually better if I leave because when I leave, I won't be standing next to you, but my spirit will be inside of you. And the spirit within you is better than, like, there's a guy who wrote a book, J.D. Greer. It was called Jesus Continued, Why the Spirit Inside You is Better Than Jesus Beside You. That was his whole point of this book, right? And that's what Jesus is saying. It's better if I go, because then the spirit will come. So what is Jesus talking about here then? Well, in theology, we call this the already but not yet. Here's the idea. When Jesus came the first time, he inaugurated the kingdom of God. He set it up. He got the ball rolling. Uh, but we still live in a time of competing kingdoms. There's the kingdom of Babylon that we talk about a lot, right? the kingdom of the enemy, the world's system of oppression and injustice and all that, and then there's the kingdom of God. And these two kingdoms are competing, but we live in a time where Babylon still has a lot of influence. But what Jesus promised his, his disciples is that at the second coming, the kingdom of God is going to come in its fullness. So not the... The, the kingdom of Babylon is going to be completely defeated. And that's what the whole like, last little part of Revelation is about, right? The, you know, the, the fall of Babylon the Great and all this stuff, you know, and the, the, the enemy being thrown into the lake of fire. And so the disciples of Jesus, right, as disciples of Jesus, we live through this entire age of tribulation with a hope and a longing for the day of the Lord to come, for the second coming to happen, where his kingdom is going to ultimately push out the kingdom of Babylon, and his kingdom is going to come in its fullness. And so uh, that's what he's talking about here. But then there's this other part where he goes, uh, and then they will say to you, look there or look here, do not go out or follow them. So what Jesus says here is don't go after the fakes. Until that day, until the great day of the Lord, until the second coming, there are going to be people there uh, who claim to bring the fullness of the kingdom of God. So we have like actual people who claim to be Jesus come back, right? Like the Jehovah's Witnesses, it's kind of weird. They don't say Jesus came back exactly. They say he came back in spirit, I think it is, but basically he's come back in 1914 or something. So Jesus, like the second coming to them has already happened. There are other people who are like uh, David Koresh. Do you remember him? Told everybody he was Jesus, and then got in a, was a gunfight with the FBI or something? I don't know the whole story, right? But that was his thing, right? Like, I'm Jesus, come back. Um, and then, you know, him and the whole cult, they all died, I think. Uh, <clears throat> but there's other ways that people claim this without saying, I'm Jesus, come back. They claim to bring the kingdom promises in other ways, right? So we have different worldviews and religions and teachings will come along and say, this is what you've been longing for, right? This is basically, they won't say use that phrase, but they're offering you the kingdom of God, but it's not. Uh, this is the ultimate good. But it happens in, right, like I said, like other religions, Islam, Mormonism, whatever it is, um, but it happens in subtler ways too. A lot of self-help teaching ends up like this, right? Like this is the ultimate, this is what will make you happy. Um, metaphysical naturalism, right? The idea that Uh, The physical world is all there is, and science is king, sort of offers this hope that we've got everything figured out. And we talk a lot about existentialism here, you know, and uh, expressive individualism, the idea that you are the center and 
you know, you're this blank slate and you have to write your own story and all of this kind of stuff. It offers this hope. The sexual revolution offered this kind of hope. Political systems, we see this both with, you know, I had lunch with this kid uh, this week who's a Bernie Sanders, like, you know, you know, so he thinks, <laughs> right, Bernie Sanders is going to bring the ultimate good. But then you see the Trump guys doing the same, like left and right people are falling into these political systems as if this is going to bring the fullness of the kingdom of God and this is going to push Babylon away. Uh, I'm not getting all political, and you know, if you're a Bernie person, I don't care if you're whatever. All right, um, Jesus says, but what he says is, don't fall for it. Is there some self-help stuff that can be helpful? Yes. Is it ultimate? No. Right, so when this stuff comes along, don't fall for it. Because when the kingdom comes, he says, when it really does come, when the second coming happens and the kingdom comes in its fullness, you're going to know. He who testifies these things says, oh wait, sorry, that's the wrong verse. Uh, verse 24, for as lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. It's going to be obvious. This is what he says. This is great. Let me tell you why. This is fantastic. Jesus says you're not going to miss it because Jesus is promising you you're never going to have to show up and have like a church committee meeting where you have to decide if what just happened was the second coming of Jesus. Okay? If you ever have a meeting where you're trying to decide, was that the second coming of Jesus? It wasn't, right? If it, you know, if it happened, like, you know, did anybody else's parents, oh, you'll know when I'm mad, right? You'll know when Jesus comes back, you know what I mean? Um, In the ancient world, right, lightning was mysterious and awesome. It was a big deal. They were very afraid of it. They didn't know what it was. Ben Franklin didn't electrocute himself yet with his kite or whatever, you know. They didn't understand what was going on. And so if you're standing outside, Uh, and lightning flashed across the entire sky, everybody you're standing with would have gone, whoa, right, that was awesome. I mean, even now, we understand lightning, and like, I've been on a motorcycle in a lightning storm where it was like hitting rocks, like pretty close to me, like within 100 feet of me, you know, and it's terrifying, right? Lightning, so Jesus says, it's going to be like that. There's no way to ride your motorcycle through a lightning storm and not know it. That's what he says, paraphrasing. Uh, So when I come back, it's going to be awesome. Trust me, you'll know when it happens. But first, he says, he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. So first, he must suffer. I think this is interesting. Okay, you ever done this when you're in conversation? All right. First, let me tell you something. And then you say something. And there's no second, right? This is the only thing you had to say. (laughs) Where's, you know where's number two? Uh, like, where's the second point? Oh, I, I just, I'm really mad. <laughs> right, that's kind of what Jesus does here. He gives the timeline for his second coming, and he goes like this. First, I, I must suffer, but there's no second. That's all it gets to. So the timeline goes like this. He suffers, he dies, he rises again, and then he comes back. Okay, that's important. We're going to get to that later. We're just going to leave that there, but that's the timeline. Now, um, he says, this is key too, he says, first, he must suffer, right? That's important. It's not, I really want to suffer. It's not, man, if I get around to it, right? There's an imperative here. Luke is very clear about Jesus driving his way to the cross. The whole reason he's come is for the cross. And so I gotta, I'm going to come back in glory and all of this, but first, right, first I need to suffer. And we're actually going to get more into that next week. So I'm going to kind of leave that there and get back to the second coming stuff. Now, verse 26, just as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. So Jesus gets back to this discussion of what the second coming looks like. First, I'll get crucified and I'll rise. And then what will it be like after that in the end times? And he says he's going to use this illustration, two illustrations from the Old Testament. First, Noah, and then he says this, verse 27. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the days when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, they're buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So it will be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. So he uses two illustrations of times when God's judgment came upon humanity. The first is the story of Noah. Do you guys know the story of Noah? Okay. 
story is not the best children's story. I don't know why we have so much flannel grass of this at VBS when I was a kid, <laughs> right? Because you know, the, 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 the animals are cute, I guess. But let's talk about what really happened. Is God got so fed up with humanity that he picked one guy and he said, I'm going to give that guy grace and his family, build a boat, and I'm going to kill everybody else. That's, that's a pretty heavy story. The second story is Lot and the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. And if you don't know this story, basically what happened was um, Abraham's relative, this guy Lot and his family, were living in Sodom, and it was this wicked, awful city, these twin cities, Sodom and Gomorrah. So some angels came and got them out of town, and as soon as they got out of town, fire and sulfur like rained down and destroyed and burned up the city, and God's judgment fell. And so Sodom and Gomorrah have become like the the, the word picture of judgment, right? You know, um, like in another part, I think Jesus goes, it's going to be worse for you than it was for Sodom and Gomorrah. You know, that's, so Jesus says, so he takes those, those two stories. What he says is, what, what were those people doing when that judgment came? They were just going about their lives. Now, notice Jesus doesn't say anything actually about the sins of the people. He doesn't really bring that up. That's not his point here is to get into the details of the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah or the sin of the people of Noah. His point was they were just living their everyday lives, going about their business. Now, there's nothing wrong with that. He doesn't say that was wrong. There's nothing wrong with going to work and watching Star Trek and uh, watching basketball and doing, you know, living life. We're supposed to live life. That's, you know, what we're called to do. But the problem is uh, when ordinary life becomes this routine that keeps you from the things of the kingdom keeps you from a sort of kingdom perspective. And that's what he's saying here. That's what these guys did. They were just going around with no kingdom mindfulness, just going about their business. And then this drastic event happened. And Jesus says, that's what it's going to be like when the second coming happens. People are just going to be doing regular things. People are going to be cleaning their houses, right? Mopping the floor and vacuuming. And then boom, Jesus is going to come back. They're going to be eating dinner, sitting around the table, some will be watching the, bar, watching the game at a bar, and they're all going to be cheering, and then boom, Jesus is going to come back. Others will be, you know, at work typing code into that little screen that I don't understand, you know, where it's like auto-filling all your stuff, you know, and you're, I always see you guys, I watch you at, your, at the coffee shop, and it's amazing how much of typing code I think is Googling stuff and going, because I don't know, and then copying and pasting it, and then going, that didn't work. Let me try this other one until something works. And then he goes, yes. That's what's going to be happening. And then Jesus is going to come back, right? Jesus is going to come back and catch people completely by surprise. You won't be able to finish cleaning your house. You won't finish the meal that you've just prepared. You won't be able to spend the money that you've been saving in your bank account. You won't be able to go on that trip that you've planned. Jesus coming back is going to be a world-ending, world-changing event and nothing after it will ever be the same. And we are going to, on the other side of that event happening, if it happens while we're alive, let's say, I don't know if it's going to happen while we're alive, maybe right now. I always do that. Someday. I do that enough in sermons. It's going gonna, it's gonna to happen. It's going to be awesome. Uh, <laughs> no. Um, <clears throat> uh, if we're alive when that happens, and even if we're not, it, like, that event happening is going to give us this crazy perspective that I don't think any of us can really have right now. We try to. It's like before and after COVID. I was watching something the other day. I don't even remember what it was, but it was like a YouTube video of probably some guys reviewing guitar stuff because that's what I do all day. And they were like, these guitars are coming out in 2019. I was like, oh, they don't even know. <laughs> these poor, <laughs> these poor, foolish, foolish guys, right? That's what we're going to, that's the perspective we're going to have, right? Is this is, a, this is a drastic, you know, it's like that times a billion, right? So Jesus keeps going. He says, on that day, the one who's on the housetop with his goods in the house, uh, with his goods in the house, not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. So Jesus, this is a quick point I'm not going to beat to death because we've talked about this a lot. As Jesus has been talking about stuff and money and mammon and all that, we've done like five or six sermons about the same idea. But basically, he says, don't hold on to your stuff. Don't 
he's trying to build in perspective, right? Imagine living in Sodom and Gomorrah right before the destruction. And imagine that you knew it was coming and you knew it was going to happen tomorrow. Would you buy a house in Sodom? No, because you have the perspective. And so, that, I mean, not that you're not supposed to buy a house. Go ahead and buy a house, right? If you have a billion dollars and you live in San Francisco, you could buy a house if you want. Um, but knowing that cataclysmic event was coming would change your relationship with your stuff. And that's what Jesus says, right? It changes our relationship with this world and this stuff. We don't hold on to things quite so tightly. And then, I think this might be the shortest verse in Luke, remember Lot's wife. That's what he says. You remember Lot's wife? Right? What happened to Lot's wife? She was walking. Sodom and Gomorrah is being destroyed behind her. And God had told them, I think, don't look back. And she turned around and she looked back. And then she turned into a pillar of salt. Now, what's the point of that <clears throat> story is we need to learn the lesson. I think this is what Jesus is saying. We need to learn the lesson that she never learned, right? Something in her heart was still attached to the city of Sodom and Gomorrah. When God told him to get out of Dodge and don't look back, he meant also not just don't look back, but don't like long to go back. Don't miss the old life. Um, when I was a kid, I hated balloons. I was the only kid. It's not true. I loved balloons, but I hated them at the same time. Let me tell you why. This is one of those fuzzy memories from when you were a kid, so I don't know. If my mom texts me after that this is not how it happened. I don't know if she listens to the podcast or whatever. But um, I remember a ton of different times being offered a balloon and saying, no, I don't want it, because I knew that that balloon would either pop or fly away. And I would rather not experience the joy at the beginning because I knew it's not going to last. I don't, need, I don't need this kind of grief in my life. I just, I don't want a balloon. Uh, I was telling this story to a friend of mine years ago, by the way, um, who was a lot smarter than me. And he goes, you know, that kind of deferment of joy in a child is a sign that they're a psychopath, right? And we were like having coffee, and I was like, I don't know what to do with this information. <laughs> uh, it's completely unrelated. Anyway, the point is, even as a kid, I looked at the end of the story of this is how this balloon is going to end. And I said, I, so I'm not going to hold on to this balloon. I don't need this balloon in my life. Um, maybe a smarter way would have been to enjoy the balloon knowing it wasn't going to last forever. But anyway, my point is, uh, you get the idea, right? The things in the life, the things that we have in this life are like those balloons. They're either going to pop or they're going to fly away, and they're not going to be eternal. And none of the material crap here that we have is going to last into eternity. So Jesus says we shouldn't hold on to it so tightly and learn the lesson that Lot's wife never did. He keeps going. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. Uh, so this is kind of the same idea, right? Is, um, this is one of those counterintuitive, upside-down kingdom of God ideas. Right? Everything in the world tells you to hold on to your crap. Possession is nine-tenths of the law. Right? You've heard that. Uh, but the upside-down kingdom sees it a whole different way. Eventually, Jesus is coming back, and that's going to be a complete game-changer. So how we deal with this world now is affected by this coming reality. And then verse 34, I tell you, in that night, there will be two in one bed. One will be taken, the other left. There will be two women grinding together. One will be taken, and the other left. Okay, so we need to now talk about the rapture. This is, you ready for this? We're going to get into this. So there's a theological idea, but before we talk about that, that theological idea, I need to back up and tell you about the system that that idea comes from. So there's a theological system called dispensationalism. And just to explain dispensationalism to you, this is how it works, is um, these folks look at, so yeah, these folks look at the Bible, and they think the Bible is sort of broken up into some sections, which it is, and they call those sections uh, these dispensations. And what they believe is there's less continuity between each of these parts, right? They're like harder breaks between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And uh, so they have a few different ideas, right? Like one of them is um, that there are two peoples of God. There's the Old Testament Jewish people of God, and there's the New Testament church people of God. And they're both the people of God, but they're separate. So there are promises for these guys, and there's promises for these guys, and they're not the same, and they're not linked. Um, the second thing they do is very literal interpretations of the scriptures. These folks take the scriptures very seriously, uh, which is a great thing, right? Uh, but sometimes what they do is the sort of hyper-literal interpretation and miss sort of the big, like, the, the, they'll take things that I think are meant to be 
uses imagery, and they'll say this is a literal, it's trying to describe a literal reality. So the one I always say is there's a section in Revelation where it talks about locusts. And the point of that passage is locusts destroy everything. And so he's making this point about destruction. They'll read that passage and say this is at the end times, and the John was seeing what he, he heard the noise, and to him it sounded like locusts, and it was probably helicopters, right? And they'll go, these are helicopters in Scripture, right? Okay, so the appeal of dispensationalism is they look at the end times, and uh, they'll say, like, I can read the, the Scriptures with the Bible in one hand and a newspaper in the other hand. That's like the big appeal, because we want to be able to interpret our times through the lens of Scriptures, and these dispensationals are, <clears throat> are trying very hard to do that. Um, like, I remember a pastor, so I grew up around a lot of dispensational folks. I have a lot of experience with this. Um, but a pastor, when I was younger, explaining the end times, and there's going to be these 10 nations who are going to go to war at the field of Armageddon. He was explaining the timeline, and he was kind of like the guy from the beginning, you know, like the, with his charts. Here's the, you know. And he was explaining it, and this was like just after the Iraq war had started. And so he went on this whole 20-minute tangent about this is why Iraq's not in the Bible part. You know, and I'm reading it, and I'm like, that says Gog and Magog. That's not Russia. And, you know. But that's what he was doing. He was trying to make sense of the Iraq war through the lens of Scripture. Now, the history, real quick, of the dispensational movement. Um, uh, and the dispensationals are the ones who come up with this idea that at a certain point in the history of God's people— there's going to be a secret rapture, meaning, um, which comes from this Latin word uh, in the Bible. But the idea is everybody's just going to be standing there, and all of the believers in the entire world are going to be taken up into heaven. So if your bus driver is a believer, he's going to be going down the street, and boom, your bus driver's gone. Your pilot, the barista, your husband or wife, you know? Okay, so that's the idea. Now, the, the idea of that secret rapture was... The first place that this showed up in all of church history was in the 1800s by a guy named John Nelson Darby. And when I used to sort of, I grew up in a church that sort of believed this stuff. So at one point in college, I was looking into this and I was going to write a paper about it. And my professor challenged me, find one instance of anybody talking about a rapture before John uh, Darby. And I was like, yeah, that'll be easy. And then I spent like three weeks and I couldn't because I don't think there is one, right? So this guy was the first one to come up with this idea. That doesn't necessarily mean it's wrong, but it's just interesting, right? Nobody believed this for 1,800 years. And then it was popularized by folks like um, D.L. Moody. Uh, there was a guy named Cyrus Schofield, if you've ever seen the Schofield Reference Bible. Like, it's probably the most popular study Bible in history. Um, then another guy, Charles Ryrie, Ryrie, say that 20 times fast, wrote a study Bible. Um, in modern, more modern times, there's a John MacArthur is a dispensational... And then there's folks like Tim, I don't know how to say it, LaHaye, I think. So this guy wrote the Left Behind series, if you know these books and movies. And I'm like, I haven't seen it, but I'm really curious because they made a new one with Nick Cage. That's got to be the best bad movie of all time. <laughs> Maybe we'll do it. Anyway, okay. So the idea of the rapture um, comes from, I'm actually, I was going to read this, but I don't have enough time. But if you want to read in 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18, um, there's a section there where Paul is trying to explain to the, the church in Thessalonica. They, they were asking questions, well, what happens to my, my loved ones who have already died? Because they were expecting Jesus to come back pretty quick. And so Paul is sort of explaining that, and he talks about, uh, in verse 16, the Lord will descend from heaven with the cry and the voice, you know, and then those who are alive in verse 17, uh, wait, I might actually be able to find let's say, 17. Those who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds and meet the Lord in the air. Um, so anyway, the point being, dispensationals get a lot of this teaching of the rapture from this specific verse, and what they believe is the end times, the, the tribulation period of the church is going to be a seven-year period at the end of time, and it's going to be started by all the believers going up into the sky in this rapture. And so once the rapture happens, most of them believe this is the timeline, once that rapture happens, it starts the clock on those seven years. Um, now, <clears throat> they, they use two proof verses, this one and the verse that we're reading in Luke. Um, wait, let me go back to that, uh, that people will be caught up, right? Now, again, let me give you the, the problems, I think, with this idea. Because I mean, has anybody not heard of this idea of the rapture? 
It's been kind of all over American evangelicalism, right? I bet there are more dispensational evangelicals than not. I don't know. There's a lot, right? This is not like a fringe movement. And I'll say, too, it's not a bad move. They're not bad people, right? There's some great dispensational folks, like the guy who taught me how to preach with a dispensation. You know, so as I'm talking about this, don't get the, like, I, I, I want to avoid that error that, like, if you believe this, you're not a good believer. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like I said at the beginning, like my, my theological system. But growing up in this world, there's just a few kind of things that made me kind of come out of this idea. And one of them is the historical theology. Nobody believed this until the 1800s. Once I figured that out, it really bothered me. The second is the context of these verses. The context of Thessalonians is not about a secret rapture. It's about what happened to my loved ones. And Paul's point is you're going to see them again because at the second coming, we're all going to be reunited. Right? And so that's what he says. It's at the second coming, not at some secret point in the middle of church history. Um, the second problem is the timeline. Right? Jesus said, first, we, I must suffer, and then I'm coming back. That's the timeline. That's as much as we know of the timeline of the end times, right? And so the idea of a secret rapture means there's other things in the timeline that Jesus forgot to mention. Um, and then the big, the big thing, though, is nowhere in church, sorry, in the New Testament, are believers promised escape from tribulation, which is the whole idea behind the rapture, is God would never let his people go through something like that problem with that is these books, like First Peter, the book of Revelation, these books are not to tell you how to get out of tribulation. They're encouragements to persecuted believers who are under the evil system of Babylon and how to persevere through that until Jesus comes back and brings the fullness of the kingdom. So the, the whole idea behind the rapture idea, I think, is misguided. It's, this is how we, it's this escapism, this is how we can escape. Um, okay, so what does Jesus mean then in this verse? Right, we'll look at it again. Right, the, One's going to be left, the other, you know, one taken, the other left. He says that twice. Uh, two in a bed, you know, they, they'll be grinding grain out there. One will be left. Now, remember the context. Jesus says that on his, the day of his return, what's going to happen is some people are going to be moved to judgment and some into eternal life. That's what he's talking about. That's the who's left and who's going where. That's what he means. Um, uh, yeah, let me jump forward here. He talks about this too um, in this parable in Matthew. You can go. I'm not going to read it now, but you can go read it later. Um, but the idea is there's a separation that's going to happen when he comes back, the righteous and the unrighteous. And so let's not forget the context, right? We're going to get into this more in chapter 18. But Jesus' whole train of thought here is the people who are going to be taken into eternal life are not necessarily the people you would expect. And that's what he gets into. We're going to do all of chapter 18 next week. I know you're thinking, what, are we going to do a five-hour sermon? Maybe. Uh, okay, the last verse here, verse 37. Now, one more weird, just kind of cryptic, odd verse. Nobody in the entire world has ever tattooed this verse on their arms. And they said to him, where, Lord? And he said, where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Right? It's pretty clear. So we just move on. No, um, this is another... Oh, wait, let me say real quick. We just jumped from verse 35 to 37. Did anybody else notice that? There's no verse 36. I'm not going to do a whole thing because we're running out of time. But we talked about this in the summer. Do you remember um, textual criticism? And do you remember the video with the 10-minute Bible hour guy where he had all those kids copy the poem and then he had that lady put it back together? Anyway, the idea is... The Bible that we have now is collected from manuscripts, and uh, the, the uh, science of textual criticism, right, or the idea of textual criticism is putting the Bible together from these manuscripts, and the folks who do it are very good at it, and we can be very confident that the Bible we have is the Bible we have. Way back in the day, there was a little note, there was a verse 36. It said, two men will be left in the field, one will be taken, and the other left. Um, that was in some manuscripts that now, later on, we know oh, that probably wasn't in the original Bible. Somebody along the way added that verse, and we have enough confidence to be like, let's leave that one out. But it's in the King James, it's in the New King James. Those are some like older translations, but all the newer translations leave it out. All right, anyway, so back to this. Uh, the, fair, the disciples ask him this question, not the Pharisees. The disciples ask him this question. This time it's not when, but where. So they're listening, 
boy, you're coming back, you're going to separate the wheat from the tare, you know, you're going to send some to eternal life, some to judgment, it's going to be this great and awesome day of the Lord. Uh, that sounds cool. Where should we go wait for that to happen? And Jesus' answer is super weird and cryptic, and nobody knows exactly what it means, if I'm being completely honest. Uh, one commentator that I was reading goes, okay, you know how sometimes I'm like, here's, like, I just did this. Here's the three options for what different believers. Okay, this guy goes, there's like 20-something options for this. So we're not going to go through 20-something options for this. Um, I think the one that makes the most sense goes like this. Jesus was using a common saying from the day that basically said something like, you know, when you see uh, vultures circling, you know, then you know there's a dead body somewhere, right? How do you know? So basically, uh, it's a way to say the vultures make, make it obvious. It's an obvious thing. And so Jesus is being, he's building on the idea what he said when he's like the lightning across the sky. You're going to know. And I think that's what he's saying, is you don't really have to worry about that. They want to know where to go wait. And he goes, don't worry about it. You'll know. It, it, it's going to be obvious. I think, I think that's what Jesus is saying here. Um, okay, so that's the end of our text. At the beginning, I said, we make three mistakes. Predicting the end times, Harold Camping style. Treating end times theology like if you don't believe exactly what I do about this timeline, you're insane. And the third thing is seeing eschatology as like this puzzle and then obsessing about it, right? But let's ask this question in the last like four or five minutes here. What do we really know about the second coming of Jesus from Scripture? Like what can we be confident about? There's a lot of things that I think we can say it seems like the Bible says it's going to happen like this. And it's believing those things and thinking about those things and learning about those things is great. But let's go back a little bit further. What does everybody agree on? Okay, what are the big main points? And there's a book called How, the, How Will the World End and Other Questions About the Last Things and the Second Coming of Christ by this guy Jeremy Wren. I bought a, there's a series of books like questions Christians ask. I bought a set. It'll be here in a couple weeks, I think. Um, Anyway, so he has a chapter in that book called How Will Jesus Come Back? And so I thought to end the sermon, I'm going to steal his four headers from that chapter because it's a pretty great chapter. Um, so now you don't have to read the book. Here we go. The first thing, how is Jesus going to come back? Uh, wide acceptance on these views. The first thing is he's going to come back publicly. Right? People are going to know. For, you know, as lightning flashes, that's that verse from Luke 17. Or um, I'll read to you from Matthew. So... If they say to you, look, there he is in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, look, he's in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as, again, as lightning comes from the east and shines from the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. There's a theological group that I won't get into a ton who believe Jesus came back when the temple was destroyed in 70 AD, like a group of Christians. This is what they believe. Um, Jesus says, don't buy it, right? When I come back, you're going to know. It's going to be public. The second thing is he's going to come back gloriously. Right. Then will appear in the heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Right. He's going to come back with power and great glory. The first time that Jesus came to earth, how did that happen? In a manger, to an unwed, you know, a, a, a mom who was knocked up before she was married, poor carpenter family in Nazareth, yeah, lowly, right? This, you know, the second time he comes back, he's going to be like one of those WWE guys walking down that ramp. You know, the lights going off, ah, the, times a million, right? Jesus' favorite title for himself was this, right? The Son of Man. He constantly, the Son of Man. Now, the idea of the Son of Man, we think of it in English, and we go, oh, he's one of us. He's a son of humanity, right? Like in uh, Narnia, son of Adam or daughter of Eve, you know? Uh, no, that's not what that means. It comes from Daniel chapter 7. You can read that there. And, um, the, you know, uh, one came like the Son of Man. He came like the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and kingdom that all the peoples and nations and languages should serve him. And his dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. That's the Son of Man passage. And Jesus goes, that's me. When I come back, you're going to see the real. You're not getting Jesus gentle, meek, and mild, or whatever. You're getting, 
you know, uh, WWE Jesus, right? Okay, write that in your little books, WWE Jesus. The third thing, he's coming back in victory. The Bible uses this war imagery all the time to describe the battle of the, the kingdom of God fighting with the kingdom of Babylon, right? This battle between righteousness and sin. When Jesus comes back, the battle is over. It's like in Lord of the Rings, okay? I don't use nearly enough Lord of the Rings references, so I'm going to start ramping this up. In the second book, movie, whatever, uh, Two Towers, there's a battle that happens at Helm's Deep, right? You guys know Helm's Deep. And they're fighting the orcs and stuff, and that guy's sliding on his shield. It's a whole thing. Well, anyway, the battle's not going very well, and they all think they're about to die. What happens? What's that? Gandalf shows up. Remember that whole thing? He says, I'll be there at dawn. And then all of a sudden, dawn starts to happen. And the light of Gandalf the White comes over the the mountain, and he's got the whole army of, what is it, elves or something? I'm trying to remember. Yeah, elves. And as soon as everybody in Helm's Deep sees Gandalf coming over the hill, oh, it's over. Right? When you see that in the movie, you're just like, oh, this, that's how they're going to win this battle? That's, uh, I guarantee that that's because Tolkien was a believer. <laughs> right? And that imagery is exactly the Jesus. When you see that next time, think about that. This is what it's going to be like when Jesus comes back. All of a sudden, everything lights up, and Gandalf has the you know, super bright light. You can't even see it's Gandalf, and the battle is over. He's going to win the victory. And then the last thing is he's going to come back and save. Right? For the enemies of God, the great day of the Lord, the second coming, is going to be a terrible day. It's going to be the worst day in their existence. But for his people, it's going to be the greatest day of all. Matthew 25, 34 says this, Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you before the foundation of the world. I love that. Come, you who are blessed by my Father, and inherit this kingdom. That's a wonderful promise. I heard something melting. Is that all right? Okay. Sounded like that time when we set him on fire. <laughs> anyway, that's a wonderful day to look forward to. So let's not take the end times stuff and these teachings as sort of a secret code to be cracked. So you can figure out what's the timeline so that you can be ready when Jesus comes back. You should always be ready when Jesus comes back. We've done that sermon before. You remember that, like the, the master who says, I'm not, I'm not telling you when I'm coming back. Um, let's take these passages for what they are, an encouragement to be the people of God who stay faithful to our king because we know he's coming back. Right? And let's live our lives with, with an urgency as we look forward to that day when we're invited to sit at the banquet, at the king's table, and inherit the full realization of eternal life. It's going to happen. It's not happened yet, though. 